Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, Secretary of, Secretary of State Kerry makes an emergency diplomatic trip to Iraq in response to the ISIS crisis. UNICEF Sarah Crow joins the discussion today talking about children in crisis around the world. The Supreme Court goes on the home stretch to close out their term. What is left on the docket for the Supremes? And the Obama administration issues a report on the use of drones for attacking non-enemy combatants, including Americans. That and tell me a story today, this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Tuesday here in Washington. That means it's time for Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday on my left, ironically, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Well, hello. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, a voter in the state of Maryland, apparently, according to his sticker, and former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox. He is Washington Insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. Everybody vote today in Maryland. It's it's 4 o'clock, Carl. A little late. And to my 12 o'clock, directly across the table, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Oh, Justin, glad to be here. And to my 1 o'clock across the table, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson. Obama appointee is general counsel to the Maritime Administration, the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is the Washington-based attorney, political insider, and campaign specialist, and just general left-wingered altogether. He is Daniel Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. And also, just to help you out, Justin, the polls in Maryland are open until 8 p.m. Okay. Oh, make sure you don't break any federal law here. Oh, okay. <laughs> Actually, it's the law that it's the law that Bob and Al wrote. But we'll talk about that in a second. Hey, we've got a lot. We got a lot to cover today. Well, you guys wrote something about that. Anyway, uh, it is a big show. At 4:30, we're going to have. Uh, UNICEF's chief spokesperson, Sarah Crow, talking about children in crisis around the world. Children are having all kinds of issues, and we're going to talk to her about that. But first up, we're going to talk about Secretary Kerry making an unannounced trip into Baghdad and to Iraq, talking to Iraqi leadership. And apparently when you talk to Iraqi leadership, it's not just Iraqi government, about the current crisis with ISIS or ISIL or whatever they call themselves today. Here's the latest. Uh, Secretary Kerry went over. 
uh, he told the uh, BBC that there must be regional unity to expel the Sunni rebels from the ISIS group who have taken large swaths of northern and western Iraq. What he means by that? Well, ISIS, as of today, has taken over all of the key border crossings with Syria and has taken over one key border crossing with Jordan, which has got to make King Abdullah of Jordan very uncomfortable. Let's first go with the obvious, Dan Lipner. John Kerry makes his trip to Iraq, talks with Maliki, the prime minister of Iraq. He also talks with Kurdish leadership up in the north. Number one, it, it strikes me that the Kerry trip, was this perfectly timed, or is this a, a desperate measure by the Obama administration to clean up what has already become a mess? It is a desperate measure. measure. It is a mess. It is not created by the Obama administration and it needs to be done. Uh, Maliki has screwed up the government himself and created a whole bunch of outliers, even amongst his own community. He, he, he can't get backing amongst his own coalition. So it's going to be a long-term problem that isn't going to be solved anytime soon. But, but Bob Hines, you know, Secretary Kerry going over there obviously sent a message. I mean, the Obama administration is calling for Maliki in, in several, several outlets, saying Maliki's either got to go or create a coalition government, a new government. Uh, the, as a result, the Maliki government has said that they will create a new or install a new parliament by July 1st. That seems to me, with the current state of the Iraqi central government, to be a big task. Is there any chance they could possibly make that July 1st deadline? If, if the present government, the present prime minister, creates a new government, it will be a Shiite government just like it is now, and it will be the same disaster that we have had ever since he became the boss and we, and we left three years ago and let him do what he wanted to do. And he's, he's ruined the country. He's alienated everybody except the Shiites. And uh, we have a disaster on our hands because he won't leave. Somebody better shoot him. Which raises, Congressman the, Al. raises the question of where is Saddam Hussein now that we need him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, never, never one to mix words, are you, Al? Well, I think his doppelganger is still floating around yeah. out there. <laughs> the, the point is that Contrary to why we went into Iraq in the first place, he was no immediate threat to anybody, and at least you had stability there. There were lots of things wrong with him, and I was being facetious about suggesting that I'd like him back. But the fact is that this unrest is almost predictable, <clears throat> given that uh, you took out the stabilizers, who were almost universally evil people, but nevertheless stable evil people. <laughs> but Denise Krepp, when, when we look at the possibility of there being a new government, a quickly formed <clears throat> new government in, in Baghdad, uh, there are a lot of factors and a lot of key players. One of them, Kerry, according to the New York Times, went over there trying to convince the Kurdish leadership that they're not going to be an independent state, that the U.S. isn't supporting it. They've got to make amends with the folks up in, uh, they've got to make amends with the folks in Baghdad and create a unified Iraqi government. Is that possible? No. I mean, the, the Kurdish people have wanted their own country for hundreds of years, and this is their best opportunity to get it. I mean, you've got Syria in shambles, you have Iraq in shambles, you've got problems in other areas of the world, 
and they're going to try to do it. And by the way, if we're talking to the Kurds, the other ones that need to be talking to the Kurds are the Germans. Because there is a huge Turkish and Kurdish population in Germany right now. So if we're going to be saying things to the Kurdish government, we better be bringing in some other folks from Europe who also have a vested interest in this issue. But there's a, there's a bigger problem here, Bob Hines. The, the, the rebels, the ISIS rebels, the ISIL rebels, depending on which media outlet you talk to, uh, they claimed, and several media outlets have also confirmed, that they've taken over Iraq's largest oil refinery. That has got to be now a new wake-up call for at least the NATO allies, if not our allies in the region that are OPEC. Well, of course. I mean, let, let, let's face it. They, they, are not, they do not have the capacity to, in effect, overtake uh, and, and control Baghdad. They just can't do it. They haven't got the equipment. They haven't got enough. There's not enough of them. They're not strong enough. But they have, they, they have moved very quickly. They have got border border control on almost two thirds of the of the uh, border between uh, uh, Syria and uh, Jordan. They have got they have they have now taken over their as you say the largest oil refinery. And the fact that they're in there means that you know how are you going to get them out there? You want to if you start a war inside an oil refinery, I expect you're going to have a lot of explosions and a lot of a lot of really bad things happening. I don't know what they're going to do. But right now, the situation is that if, unless the Shiite government is prepared to negotiate with Sunnis, local Sunnis, and the Kurd people in the north, which I don't think they are, unless they're willing to do that, the place could just disintegrate. Carl Tubin. The other thing, the other thing with regard to the Kurds is they, a week or two ago, took over a major oil field. And they're not going to give that up because they, they wanted it on the oil field. Now they have it. And I don't, <clears throat> unfortunately, it's very unfortunate, but I don't think there are enough uh, Sunnis in Iraq that they would be able to form a government with, especially with the fighting that's going on. Denise Kraft. My concern right now is to go back is to Turkey. There had already been unrest over this past year in the, in the country itself. Um, the current uh, president is not very popular with the Kurds. And if things keep going the way they are in Iraq, the Kurds in Turkey are going to start agitating, and that's going to destabilize the Turkish government. The Turkish government is one of our allies in NATO. We need them. If they go down, we've got even more problems. But, but Dan Lipner, Secretary Kerry this morning on CNN said, and I quote, Iraq is obviously falling apart. The time is here for the Kurdistan people to determine their future, and the decision of the people is what we are going to uphold, unquote. For Secretary Kerry to go into Iraq and say Iraq is falling apart, that's not exactly a huge endorsement of any future potential of an Iraqi central government, in my opinion. Or did I mishear that? More importantly, Secretary Kerry said Kurdistan. Uh, <laughs> well, that calls into a whole other question. I, I, have, I have a sneaking suspicion that was not accidental. Um, and the, while the destabilizing the New World Order, which is what uh, George W. Bush went in office entirely intending to do, created a bunch of problems. And yes, Iraq is falling apart. And we're going to, we, we have seen and are still seeing a brand new Middle East and that the entire region. Everything from Syria to Egypt, even even further west to 
Iran. The entire region has changed. This shakeout is going to be 20, 30, if not 50 years in the making. Uh, the idea that that even Secretary Kerry and an American presence is going to change this is just not true. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. I suspect Vice President Biden was correct when he spoke out and said this is going to be a three-state solution, that these are folks that have self-segregated and, and they are going to continue to do so because of the clear lack of any any central ability to hold it together. Congressman Al, from a congressional standpoint, when you look at Secretary Kerry, and it, it, it almost seems like he's sending a mixed message, where in one, in one soundbite he says we're there to create a stabilized, central, new government in Iraq that includes everybody, all-inclusive, yet in another, in another speaking point to the New York Times says, hey, he mentions Kurdistan, and he mentions, oh, by the way, this place is falling apart at the seams. Is, is in fact, that not sending a mixed message not only to the American people, but to Congress and our allies? It would appear so. <clears throat> I'm not sure what the background is of either statement, but on the uh, surface, uh, from what you've said, uh, yes. But as a senior member of Congress, if you were hearing this from your Secretary of State, particularly one in your own party, we, we, that would almost call into question exactly what is the end game or what is the agenda that the Obama administration is putting out there? Because I don't think they told Congress yet. What I would, what I would assume, uh, if I were still a member of Congress, is that uh, he spoke the truth. Uh, in both, we, we've got a situation in which the first would be a hopeful goal, and the second is the actual situation. Bob Hines. I think Al is exactly right. I mean, I think the Secretary is saying, you know, we've got to put something together. Can we put, a, can we put something together where we have one country with one government? Are we going to end up with a federation and a loose conglomerate of three different organizations trying to work together? I think he's being very practical. He's laying out the, he's laying out the, the reality of what's on the ground today. Is it, is it possible for the Sunnis and the Shiites to work together? Hard to see. Is it, are the uh, Kurds willing to work with either one of them? Hard to see. Dan Lipner, it's worth paying attention to why is it our interest in the first place? And to the credit of the Obama administration, we are less dependent on Middle East oil now than we've been in almost 50 or 60 years. Than we, you're, and you're for the pipeline. <laughs> I don't see us going. I don't see us wow. going to war in Canada anytime soon over their oil. Um, I could be mistaken. Well, are we going to build the pipeline? Your, your, your Tea Party friends might want us to go to war with Canada over the Canadian tar sands, but I find that unlikely. Well, I think um, we're going to build the pipeline. But, but our, our 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 interest is waning since, thankfully, we are less dependent on on the natural resources that were predominant in the region. Carl Tuvin. One of the things that, that we that the United States worried about <laughs> is the state of Israel and what impact all this is going to have on the state of Israel. It is the only democracy in the Middle East, and it's the only only real friend that we have in the Middle East at this point. On top of that, but Israel's actually biggest gain is, and this has not been widely reported, but by third-party sources now that all the Syrian chemical weapons seem to have been destroyed. It's all been accounted for as far as best abilities, and this was Israel's chief concern. Uh, okay, I'm going to disagree with that one. There is no way that all of those chemical weapons were destroyed. I mean, these are not nice guys. 
they're not going to hand over everything. There's going to be a surprise, and it's going to be when we least expect it. But I do not believe, and I will never believe, that they're handing over everything. They may have gotten a percentage, but not everything. Dan Lipner? I mean, yeah, we can quibble over the details. I mean, you, 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 I mean, you can make mustard gas and the stuff you keep underneath your kitchen sink. That is true. However, the large-scale uh, amount of it seems to have been accounted for. So, as far as our interest and our interest to the 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 international community, making sure nobody is using chemical weapons either internationally or domestically, I think we've fulfilled fulfilled our purpose. As a, as a world leader there. Carl Tuvin. I will side with Denise on this one. I think they, they still have the capacity and that they have they still have hidden things in different places so that if if they have the opportunity and need the opportunity to use it, they will have it. We're still searching for weapons of mass destruction. Yes. Boy, have we you know, really progressed since George Bush started this whole thing. <laughs> really, Al? Really, Al? Carl Tubin. The other thing I want to say is the neocons from the Bush era want feet on the ground. They still insist that we must go into Iraq and we must win the day. Who's that? I'm, I'm, I'm literally asking. I don't. I haven't heard anybody talking about Wilson putting Wicks, boots on. Wilson Wicks and some of the others. Yeah, no, Wilson Wicks has come out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But we've we, we got to... Not always. always not, not to mention Cheney. We can't leave well, him out. Right. But, but we, we've got another. But we've got another question. We've got another question here is because although the president has in fact authorized about 250 or so quote unquote advisors to go into country. Uh, Secretary Hagel, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, has said that uh, this has got to be a diplomatic and political effort that defense is not an option here. Uh, boots on the ground is not an option. At the same time, this morning, as early as this morning, BBC was reporting that uh, U.S. drones had made strikes against ISIS targets in the northwestern part of the country, to which uh, the Defense Department categorically denies any involvement of any drones here. But it does bring up a question, and we're going to talk about drone policy later in the show, but it does on the question is, when the Iraqi government asked for air support, it seems to me, Dan Lipner, that in fact drones are probably going to be the way to go on this one. Drones are the only thing that's politically viable. The American public has no desire to be involved with this war anymore. And I, I don't know where the source this was. Supposedly, there, there actually has been a poll conducted of soldiers who serve in Iraq, and they are the most vocal about not wanting to go back. That our interest is just not there anymore. Denise Kraft. Okay, but where are you going to station these drones? Because it's not as if you can station in the United States. They're going to have to be in country somewhere. Why would they have to be in country somewhere? They're either going to have to be in country or they're going to have to be nearby. Not the, not the drones I know. No, Predator B. I can launch a Predator B from Las Vegas, have it go unfettered over to Iraq, run a mission, and fly back to Vegas. I'm at home by dinner. They have crazy long legs. They, they may have crazy long legs, but we're crossing into other people's airspace when they do this. And that was one of the problems we had during the first Gulf War. So if we're planning on using drones in a capacity that we currently aren't going to be doing this, then we've got to get a lot of other OKs. And those OKs are going to stop if certain things happen in other countries that make them not want to help us. 
Carl Tuvin? The other thing, the other thing is, it was reported this morning that the Iraqis have two fighter planes. Two. And they're both inoperative, and if they were operating, there are no missiles. <laughs> <laughs> what? That makes them pretty effective. Um, Maybe they can taxi around. All I have to say, I'm so glad the mission is accomplished in Iraq. That's all I have to say. Oh, here we go. Really. We're still going to go there. Where else would we be if it weren't for the the entire mission? You can't divorce George W. Bush and that going into Iraq and how it was mislaid to the American public that this is why all of this occurred. Mind you, the Bushies were still spiking the football with the Arab Spring. This was not that long ago, claiming that this was all brought about by George W. Bush recreating the Middle East with a democracy, the seeds of democracy had been planted. How is that working now? The seeds of democracy only works. The U.S. Army is there to enforce it. That is not true democracy. Congressman Al. I was just going to say that I think there's there's a lot of truth to the fact that uh, that George Bush was responsible for Arab Spring, because by doing what we did in Iraq, and at the time that Arab Spring broke out, it looked like it might work, and it gave uh, encouragement to uh, dissatisfied groups in a series of countries in that area, and uh, and that's all blown up in our face too. So I, I guess well, I but this also brings up this also brings charges, up but is, 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 you know he had, he did a lot to accomplish things. It started in Tunisia. <laughs> well, th- th- this also brings up a bigger question though, is because we've got other regional concerns regarding this. If ISIS does expand, if they do in fact have uh, the border with Jordan in, from Iraq. That creates a whole new situation for one of our biggest allies in the region, King Abdullah. Uh, does King Abdullah start requesting, hey, we may need boots on the ground or some sort of support here for Jordan? Does this overflow into places like Jordan, into possibly Saudi Arabia? And do we, in fact, as we talked about last week, do we, in fact, engage with Iran for viable discussions to suppress ISIS. Dan Lipner. Let's be clear. The Saudis are helping the fun part of this nightmare. So if it spills into their borders, self-created, self-inflicted wound. Jordan, this is a real issue. Um, King Abdullah has been nothing but an ally for, as the the, the nation. Except for, you know, the first Persian Gulf War where we were not allowed to... uh, well, that was his. That was his father, King Hussein, not King Abdullah. King Abdullah has clarified what we're talking. Yeah, King, I mean, King Hussein had some concerns about the first Gulf War, but ultimately came around as an ally. But what we've got is a um, what we've got is a situation here where I think ISIS. Theresa May, the Home Secretary for the British government, gave her defense and homeland speech today. Uh, in the city of London that she does annually, and literally called out ISIS as the new major threat to the United Kingdom, I would venture to say, Congressman Al, that statement can't be too far off from coming from here in Washington anytime soon. This is a clear and present danger to national security. Am I wrong? No, I think that the whole region has become that. And that's the reason I keep coming back to saying, why did George Bush stick a stick into the beehive. Why did he get this whole thing started? 
Well, we can have a whole discussion on that another time, but we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back in four minutes, joining us will be Sarah Crow, Chief Spokesperson for UNICEF. We're going to be talking about the children in crisis, not only here on our border, but also in Pakistan, Syria, Africa, and the role of UNICEF in helping protect the children of our globe. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining us now from New York, she is the spokesperson for the organization that we know as UNICEF, Sarah Crow. Sarah, thank you for joining us on Backroom Politics. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Sarah, let, let's, let's start off first by asking, you know, we, we see a lot of the UNICEF ambassadors and we see the annual fundraising campaigns, but I don't think a lot of, particularly in the United States, people understand exactly what is UNICEF and what is their mission globally. Well, UNICEF is in 190 countries around the world. What makes UNICEF different from other UN agencies is is that we have our national committees in all the industrialized countries. So, for instance, in the United States, we have the U.S. Fund for UNICEF, and that's what most Americans would see here in uh, in the U.S. Uh, so UNICEF differs depending on the territory. So right now, the emergencies of the world, South Sudan, Central African Republic, Iraq, Syria, that's where we're very active on humanitarian, the humanitarian crises. Uh, and of course, then when you have a natural disaster, as we saw at the end of last year with Philippines, with floods, with earthquakes, uh, that's where our emergency room kicks into gear. But we're also working in the middle-income countries, working with governments to try and improve their policies uh, so that children benefit from the changes in those countries as well. Sarah, can you explain the UNICEF acronym? Uh, because, again, everybody knows of it as UNICEF, but you know, we, we hear it called the United, the United Nations Children's Emergency Fund, the International Children's Fund. What does UNICEF stand for, and how does it fit into the larger global UN community? Well, that's interesting because the E has become somewhat redundant over the years. Uh, UNICEF is one of the oldest UN agencies, and we were started just after the Second World War. And, of course, you would know probably the story of Audrey Hepburn, who was one of our earlier ambassadors, as you're asking about goodwill ambassadors. And she herself, as a young girl in Holland after the Second World War, was one of those who benefited from UNICEF's work on the ground there in the late 40s. And she benefited in terms of, uh, of milk supplementation, food supplementation, and education. So in the early days, it was emergencies, and then it, the E became education. But now, basically, UNICEF stands for wherever there are children in need, we're there, we're on the ground, we have presence in 190 countries around the world, and we deliver health, education, uh, nutrition. So it's not just about supplies, but it's also about policies. Child protection, of course, is, is a huge issue for us, whether it's child soldiers or children on the streets. So it's a very, very broad mandate, uh, all things that involve children. Sarah, let's talk about right now it seems that, that children globally are in a state of crisis in many regions of the world. Let's, let's talk about some of the key hotspots. Number one, Syria. Uh, how dangerous is it for children in Syria that you know of, and how, how much of a humanitarian crisis has come out of that. We've heard of polio outbreaks, we've heard of other diseases, as well as just the massive influx into refugee camps. How, how, how much of a crisis is this for UNICEF? 
It's probably the, the most complex we've ever had to deal with because what's happening in Syria is, of course, affecting an entire region and, as you know now in the past 10 days, also affecting Iraq. So we have multiple layers of crises and children are always at the forefront of these and, and, and are the worst hit. Uh, you mentioned polio. Polio, we had a polio outbreak in Syria. They haven't, been, they haven't seen uh, any cases of polio since the late 19, 1990s in the whole of the Middle East, in Middle East Iraq, Syria, etc. And the outbreak of, of, of polio is really an indication of, to what extent the health services have broken down. Polio is a bit like the canary in the mine shaft because we had one case, and for every one case, you've got 200 children infected with polio. So polio, of course, is not the worst that can happen to children. There are so many other things, but it's a very good indication of how bad the situation is for children. So we see this spillover effect. We're now in well over the third year of the crisis in Syria, and it's, it's affecting the entire region. And now we, we have this... Uh, compacted and, and more complicated uh, crisis now uh, in Iraq. And what it means for us on the ground is, you know, UNICEF works with governments, we work with NGOs, we work with communities. So we work at all levels of, um, of, the, of, of societies. But crucially, what is, what is important is that governments lead on the response. But when you have a, when you have a government that is effectively under attack or being seen as, as taking sides one way or another, we have to be extremely, extremely careful that we maintain a non-political and neutral, uh, impartial approach to all our programming. So in the case of Syria, we work with the Syria Red Cross to try to get across the lines to get, uh, to get help in where it is needed most. And that's usually where children are hardest, hardest to reach uh, because of the conflict. And of course, conflict is, uh, is, is the worst for children because they are the ones who are, going to, who are going to bear the brunt of not having access to health services, not having access to, to education, and all manner of necessities, of basic necessities in life. Now, Sarah, we also talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of our colleagues here around the table, Alan Moore, who used to be the Undersecretary for International Affairs at our Department of Commerce. Uh, he was talking about the situation in Pakistan, which became complex in our eyes, when the Pakistani government literally kicked out the World Health Organization, and I believe also discharged UNICEF out of Pakistan because they felt that they were a spy organization for Western allies. Is that a problem that you're seeing become more prevalent in the region? And how is UNICEF dealing with that concern? No, neither UNICEF nor the World Health Organization were expelled from Pakistan. We've continued to work there throughout. And, uh, and, and, you know, our mandate is to stay and deliver no matter how hard the circumstances, whether it's war, conflict or, uh, or humanitarian or, um, or natural disasters. Uh, Pakistan, you're talking now about, about polio particularly. Polio has retreated to some of the most hostile corners on earth. They're small, the northwest frontier provinces of Pakistan is where the polio eradication campaign has had difficulty operating in the past 18 months. But we are making inroads through communities working at various levels. So we're now seeing only 1% 
of the world that has infected three endemic countries, uh, that, three endemic polio countries, that's Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria. But we're seeing some very good news coming out of Nigeria, and uh, no cases in, in the last couple of weeks, uh, only three cases this year of the wild polio virus type 1. So uh, Pakistan continues to be the kind of engine of, uh, of the polio virus, and, uh, and that is, of course, of concern. But the Pakistan government leads, as do all governments, lead in, uh, in these campaigns. So they're at the forefront. Uh, UNICEF's role is to support with vaccines. We procure the vaccines. We train up the workers. We actually polio is a quite an easy, an easy operation to train people for because it's just the two uh, oral polio drops, the OPV as they're called, oral polio vaccine, and uh, this is easy to administer. But you have to set up a whole cold chain uh, that has to be in place and that has to be maintained, which is an enormous challenge in some of uh, some of this very difficult, dry, hot uh, terrain as, uh, as in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria. Um, and these are, these are the difficult areas the, in the world right now. But we're seeing some very promising, um, promising cases coming out of all three countries, promising results. Refusals, for instance, were down. Some years ago, there were families uh, and communities who were refusing due to suspicion, much like you have in the United States. I mean, just now with your measles outbreak, you, you do have areas of, of suspicion. You have areas of r rumors that have to be counteracted. Uh, so so th those, remain, um, those remain some of the areas that we have to work very hard on. But we've seen the rate of refusals come right down. So again, some promising progress there too. When you, you had mentioned Nigeria, and, and that brings up the question of Africa, and, and in particular Nigeria, uh, obviously the concern of UNICEF with uh, the recent actions of organizations like Boko Haram in Nigeria and other maltreatment of children, is, is, is Africa a, a, a hot spot for not so much the health concerns but the general welfare concerns, whether it's education, treatment, et cetera, for UNICEF? Well, Africa is hard to put into one, one basket. Uh, it's, it's several countries and uh, nearly a billion people on the continent of Africa. Uh, we're seeing such, uh, such different kind of pictures. I've spent actually most of my life in Africa, primarily in the south, and, uh, you know, from South Africa to Nigeria to Kenya, we've seen strong economic growth. You've seen uh, a strong middle class coming out of those countries. So it's a really different picture. Uh, the global trends, which, of course, you do see in Africa as well, tend to, tend to go towards this view that you're having, it's not so much rich countries and poor countries anymore, but it's rich people in poor countries and poor people in rich countries. So it's much more about equity. It's much more about getting a focus in those countries on the poorest, the worst, the, the most neglected, children who are marginalized and, and left behind, sometimes, um, sometimes purposefully that they're communities that don't fit in uh, communities that are moving through, migrant communities. So those are, those are the communities that are always the most vulnerable, and then the children amongst them, of course, are the ones that need uh, the greatest, greatest care and support. So within Africa, you have, uh, you have a very mixed picture from, um, from very sort of developed uh, corners of Africa, 
such as um, Nairobi, Johannesburg, Cape Town, etc., uh, to, um, to Central African Republic and South Sudan. Uh, and these, these two countries at the moment are of enormous concern to UNICEF because, because of the conflict, and that means fear of disease outbreaks, malnutrition, and all the awful horrors that, uh, that beset children at a time of conflict. Sarah, you, you mentioned uh, economic disparity. Is, is that a bigger issue globally than you've seen ever in the history of UNICEF? It's hard to get a, a perspective over 70 years, but certainly we're seeing, um, we're seeing really good progress, again, going back to Africa. You know, I remember as a journalist in the, in the mid-'80s working in Ethiopia, um, on the huge famine, you'd know the story about this kind of biblical famine of Ethiopia, where uh, half a million, um, well, some, some half a million children were dying uh, each year just simply because of the famine, because of lack of services, because of lack of health care, because of poor nutrition. And today, that figure in Ethiopia is down to around 70 children dying a year. Now, that still means 70 children is 70 children too much for each for each one of those. Each one of those children uh, is a deep loss to 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 their parents. But it is still enormous progress. We've seen very promising progress uh, in in uh, Niger as well. Uh, Ethiopia, as I mentioned, Uganda has also cut its child mortality rates. So, so this shows that there is progress, it is promising, and that uh, that aid works if you've got the right level of political uh, leadership and commitment, as well as all the other the other services in place. Congressman Al, you have a question for Sarah Crow from UNICEF. I, I do. Uh, children have a habit of growing up. Uh, <laughs> they do. I'm wondering what uh, what do you see as the record over the 70 years that you've been doing this uh, as to how these have improved the lives of uh, adolescents and then on into uh, uh, the years when people would be looking for jobs and raising families and so forth. Right. Well, you mentioned adolescents. Uh, that, that, of course, we, we, we sort of focus on the under-18s. That's, um, of course, how you define to find children, although some are growing up much quicker than, than that, really. But uh, what we're seeing is, uh, for instance, if you look at HIV and AIDS. Now, going back um, 10 years ago, when I started with, with UNICEF, the countries that we were really concerned about at that time were the small southern African countries of Botswana, Lesotho, Namibia, Swaziland, Zimbabwe, uh, and then, of course, bigger countries like South Africa and Mozambique, Zambia, they were all deeply, deeply affected by the HIV and AIDS crisis. And there were extremely high levels of uh, child mortality um, due to mothers passing on the virus uh, at birth and uh, during pregnancy and at birth. And it, it was so extreme that the very existence of some of those small nations was threatened. What we see today, and it's a very realistic view, is that for the first time, it looks like we could have an AIDS-free generation in the coming two years, which is, of course, something to be, to be celebrated. We're still seeing a, um, a, a worrying picture for adolescents, 
So that is an area where we have to continue to focus on very heavily. But it is really thanks to uh, enormous global efforts that we've seen the rate of uh, mortality drop dramatically in, uh, in small children. Now, with education as well, we've seen uh, far more children in school, far more girls in school. And when you get girls in school, you get what we call a double dividend because, of course, the girls are inclined to invest far more in the health of their children uh, and by one year extra in school is going to give them a, a, much, a much more of a boost for their income and that means that they will put that back into their children. So we're seeing some, some promising uh, progress there too, but of course adolescents remain, um, remain a concern. Sarah, you mentioned uh, one of your comments about uh, migrant children. Uh, is UNICEF involved, or have they been monitoring the situation on the southern U.S. border with the influx of unaccompanied children coming in from El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua? And what is UNICEF's role? Yes, absolutely. Well, we don't have programs in the United States and in countries that are as developed as here, industrialized countries of Europe and North America. We don't actually have programs, but of course we do, and we're very active in uh, Central America and, and Latin America generally. So in many ways, this is a push-pull factor, the conditions, and this is what we, we wrote about and have, have done a lot of advocacy work in the past couple of weeks when we saw the numbers of, of children increasing. Uh, it's the, fact, the factors that push them out of the countries where they come from as well. A cho children always are best off in their own communities, in their own homes where possible, and not in any, in any other form of, uh, of, of detention centers uh, should only ever be seen as they are here as temporary solutions. We're seeing a picture, this is also of course the summer season, so, uh, so this is how it changes in, in the US, but also in Europe where we see very high numbers of, uh, of children coming in uh, from Syria, refugees landing in, particularly in southern Italy, has had a very high number of, uh, of child migrants um, this year. So what that means is that we have to advocate go with governments to, um, to, to ensure that they've got all the right kind of help that they need, that they're getting medical attention, that they're getting, that they're getting good nutrition, that their families are being traced where possible, uh, and, and all of those necessary steps are taken in the right way. And of course it's about creating an awareness and um, getting homegrown solutions uh, in particular where the children come from in the first place. Dan Lipner, question for Sarah Crow from UNICEF. Yeah, Sarah, I'm, I'm kind of curious, with, with the new fighting in Iraq and everything else going on there, uh, what are you seeing as far as the, the, the effects on children in the region, but also what can be done to respond to the needs there on the ground? Right. Well, our main focus right now, given the soaring summer temperatures, is really water and sanitation, getting out hygiene kits to where they're needed. Uh, it's setting up child-friendly spaces so they have a place to play. They have a way of kind of maintaining a form of uh, separation from the conflicts around them. It's a very, very fluid situation and one, uh, as I say, with the, with the influx of, of both the Syrian refugees as well as internal displacement, uh, it, it has created a multi-layered uh, crisis for, for 
all of the communities and of course UNICEF is, is doing its best to respond but it is um, right now something of, uh, of a finger in the dike. It's, um, it's, it's, it's of deep concern to us at the moment. So do you have the resources you need to, to, to respond or is it just the, the issues on the ground that are making it so complex? Well, it's a combination of, of both. Um, because, because of the um, protracted nature of the Syrian crisis, the solution is obviously peace. That, that, is going to, that is going to create an environment where you won't have people on the run. You won't have this overflow into Iraq, into Iraq or Lebanon or Jordan or any of the other. Turkey as well is, is, is impacted. So, you know, if, if, there were, if there was a focus on peace, and that's not the area that we, we are directly involved in, but obviously we advocate for that. Uh, in terms of the resources, we're reassessing our appeal at the moment, and, and we will have to work out exactly what is needed based on the, the needs assessment on the ground. But this crisis right now is bigger than any one agency, is bigger than any one government. So it is, it is beyond the capacity of just UNICEF to deal with it. It, it, is, it is a global crisis now. Congressman Al, question for Sarah Crow. <clears throat> the, uh, the recent action on the part of certain families in South America that have been sending their children by the bundles to the United States uh, to get them out of the kinds of problems they have at their home uh, is probably primarily a United States problem because uh, we're a rich country. But uh, does UNICEF have concern about things like that, where you have mass movement of children uh, for, for safety reasons? Well, let me, let me follow up with that real quickly, Sarah, is, you know, one, one of the one of the concerns I know that the American government and uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, Secretary Jay Johnson talked about it earlier in a congressional hearing on Capitol Hill. Uh, one of the big concerns is is the uh, proliferation of youth gangs, gangs such as MS-13, the Suertas, etc. Are, are, are those concerns that UNICEF is trying to at least educate families and children on on the on the on the terror that might be involved in being part of those types of organizations? Absolutely. And right now, you know, it's a bit much further south, of course, but Brazil with the World Cup, um, UNICEF is very active on the ground working with, uh, with communities to try and create a sports for development um, because sports, of course, is such a, has such a profoundly healing effect on, uh, on children and communities. So the same, the same is happening to a lesser or a greater extent depending on where you are in Latin America. But it's, poverty is driving this as well, of course. So it is, uh, it is multi-layered and complex, and, uh, and that's why you have this push-pull uh, push effect in, the, in Central America right now, which is seeing a very tragic uh, situation with, with so many children um, leaving their homes. But, and in terms, of, in terms of gangs, it really does require, and, uh, and it is happening, but obviously it's never enough, uh, working, working with communities, uh, communities on the ground in all of those countries, so that you you don't have um, children running in fear or or indeed being used by gangs um, for to further their own means. Uh, Sarah Crow, we've got a couple more. We got just a couple of minutes left in the segment. Uh, real quickly, uh, Secretary General Ban Ki Moon, he's obviously very supportive of UNICEF 
is he spearheading a a new campaign that you guys are trying to uh, push out as a result of the the areas of crisis, i.e., Iraq, Syria, Pakistan? Certainly, he would be on behalf of all the United Nations agencies, and and UNICEF, of course, is is one of the one of the biggest, um, together with the Refugee Agency and World Health Organization, and so on. So he would represent and uh, and advocate on behalf of all um, UN agencies. When it comes to something like access, that's more through, um, through Bar- Baroness uh, Valerie Amos, who, who works very actively to ensure that humanitarian agencies on the ground continue to have, to have access in times of conflict. UNICEF has a long history. You might know of, for instance, in Sudan before the separation of South Sudan and North Sudan or Sudan itself, uh, Operation Lifeline Sudan, which was the first time during our executive director at the time, Jim Grant, who started something called Days of Tranquility. And this was negotiating with communities on the ground, with governments, with conflicting parties, uh, warring parties, to, uh, to get them to stop fighting uh, for a period so that children could be vaccinated and they could be reached uh, with nutrition, their nutrition needs, health needs, and so on. So this is something that we try to replicate uh, depending on the circumstance, but we are seeing a far more complex picture of these humanitarian crises now unfolding. It is far simpler and far far easier to, to fundraise for uh, when you have a natural disaster, such as a flood, an earthquake, a hurricane, typhoons, those kinds of things, rather than political crises, because there's an inclination for those who are not impacted by a political crisis to blame the leaders, and that's quite right. But it is children who are, who are impacted by this, and it's through no fault of their own that they are touched by it. So that's what we try to remind the world through media, through donors, through, through governments, that it, is, that, you, that, that it has to be focused on them and their needs because that's, they are the building blocks of every nation. Sarah, final question. Uh, when we talk about the finances, does UNICEF currently have the financial means to deal with the crises before it? And what can the general public, our listening public, and the American public as a whole do to help support the good work that UNICEF does globally? Well, it's it's never enough, is it? It's it's always going to be because with each new crisis comes another layer of demand. And you know, within the past uh, Central African Republic and South Sudan, the conflict there broke out in mid-December last year. So, of course, you can be prepared and you can have risk reduction policies in place. Uh, but you can't really plan for the unforeseeable uh, when you have a protracted emergency. So, so there's, there's, it's, never, it's never too much, and we have, to, uh, we have to put out extra appeals every time we have these new crises. And, of course, you know, whether it's um, on, on top of this, we might face a natural disaster somewhere. So, um, so we have to always have, a, have some set-aside funds to be prepared for, uh, for something like that. So, yes, the general public, I think, can 
advocate for for children's rights, um, for children's rights and for their well-being, and uh, and support organisations uh, like UNICEF and so many other very good organisations around the world who are doing the best they can under extraordinarily difficult circumstances at the moment. Well, that's fantastic, uh, Sarah Crow. Chief Spokesperson for UNICEF. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We urge all our listeners to support UNICEF and the good work that they do globally. It's a really tough mission, and you guys do fantastic work. Sarah Crow, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Regards to all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When we come back, we're going to change gears a little bit. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court and their final home stretch for their term this year. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Ironically, we only have the three attorneys in backroom politics that are joining us. Oh, no, Congressman Al's back. Fantastic. Hey, uh, well, we're going to change gears for a second. And, oh, Bob, yeah, Bob, Bob, we're, we're live. <laughs> it's a radio show. <laughs> uh, we're going to change gears and talk about what? You're live? Okay, just making sure. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going into its home stretch for this term, and it is going to be a doozy. There are a lot of issues still on the docket that they have to deal with. But first, I want to take a look at the, the term thus far. Bob Hines, we've talked about several of the decisions made by the Supreme Court this year. Has this measure up as far as uh, a, a Supreme Court term, and have the Supremes done Anything that anybody expected them to do? I'd say they've done more. <laughs> really? How so? Well, they've had a number of decisions that have been pretty significant this year, and uh, I'm not going to try to enumerate them, but they have set some decisions down which are interesting, uh, somewhat controversial, and uh, probably going to be discussed and maybe legislated around as we go forward. What do you think, David? Go ahead, Dan Lipner. All I have to say is, who knew prior to today that Justice Scalia is an environmentalist? <laughs> who knew? Who knew? You're talking about the recent, the recent Supreme Court divided ruling. I, I, I don't even know how to explain what kind of ruling that was because they had a seven, they had a, 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 a seven-four vote and then a five-four vote. It was just an odd decision that came down regarding EPA and uh, their ability to enforce air emission standards. Dan Lipner? And essentially, and I have not read through the full ruling, but as I understand it, the Obama administration got much of what they wanted as far as the ability to, to regulate greenhouse gases. And, uh, <laughs> and what I suspect is the, and go deeper into the woods here, uh, that this is actually a, the fingerprints of the Roberts Court because he assigning this opinion to Scalia, I suspect, is an attempt to bring the court into less five to four decisions, even though this wasn't quite one of those. Right, uh, Bob Hines. Though, when, when we look at some of the rulings that have come out uh, regarding uh, political issues. One that stands out was uh, this year, in fact, just in June, uh, the Supreme Court basically upheld and ruled in favor of uh, a challenge to the law saying that political lies are illegal in campaigning. That's your home state there, Bob. So I guess it's a free-for-all for political lies. You're, by, by the way, it always has been. And, and by the way, you're smoking <laughs> pot right now. I mean, I could say that in a political campaign, that, no problem. Does that does a decision like that from the Supreme Court surprise you? Yes, it does. But the fact of the matter is, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be surprising, really. And oh, and by the way, let me clarify. Let me clarify. Let me just clarify one thing. The Supreme Court ruled that the Ohio law banning political lies is constitutional. That it's not a First Amendment right. They're saying that you just can't lie. It's like basically screaming fire in a crowded uh, theater. Uh, but does that surprise you that they would come down with a, a decision like that or no? Well, yeah, quite frankly, I'm surprised that they got to the court. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Why yeah. so? Half of political advertising is not true. 
Well, <laughs> only half. Only half, exactly. I hear you're a radical thespian, and I can't believe you appear on the show being a thespian like yourself. Wow. There you are. You know, it, it, you know uh, it, it, the Supreme Court also, back in June, allowed for false advertising, the Coca-Cola Minute Maid case. Apparently, you're not drinking orange juice, and that's legal, apparently, in, according to the Supreme Court. They, they've had some crazy ones, but... At the same time, they've also uh, they rejected the Oregon decision to halt same-sex marriages. They denied that request. Uh, they've done a lot as far as gay marriage, c- continuing the evolution of gay marriage being legal in the United States. Does it surprise you with the court that we have now, which has predominantly been a Republican-appointed court, Bob Hines? Well, you know, the, the social issues... You know, as they as they develop, you know they they you know there's very usually they begin with a very small group of interested individuals who want to want something to happen in a certain way. And as time goes by, it becomes more and more popular. Some of the issues become more and more popular and more mainstream. And the court, I think, is just uh, is is recognizing the fact that the the United States public, generally speaking, is willing to you know, let people be who they are. Let people do, let people do what they want to do as long as they're not damaging society or doing things they shouldn't be doing. And I think that there were, you know, gay rights and other things of this nature, which 25 years ago were un, un, unexpe- unacceptable, are today much more acceptable. You might want to explain that to Rick Perry, though. Well, <laughs> well, Is it possible to explain anything to Rick Perry? <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. Congressman Al, you had a thought. Yes, and I... <laughs> and you forgot it already. Well, well, well my ad lib got in the way. Oh, uh, there we go. Uh, hey, oh, go ahead. I'll get back to it. Okay, we'll get back to it. The, the Supreme Court did back also in June uh, talk about... Oh, you oh, came back to you, Al? Okay, well, go ahead. I just wanted to, to note that <clears throat> libertarianism is frequently perceived exclusively as a, as a conservative thing. The fact is that, in many ways, libertarianism will also support liberal views. And the whole gay marriage thing is, uh, maybe it's not surprising that a very conservative court bordering on libertarianism would say, you've got want to get married, go ahead. So I, I'm not too surprised by that. But we also have a situation where the Supreme Court also ruled just recently that uh, it, it, back on June 10th, that it, it was divided, but the children of illegal immigrants who came here and were also involved in uh, the Deferred Action Program put forth by the Obama administration even though it is a slow-moving process, once they turned 21, the court ruled they had to get to the back of the line. That ticked off a lot of the minority communities, particularly the Hispanic community. That was a dangerous, dangerous ruling in some eyes, Bob, just saying that it, it brings to, to light a situation where more illegal immigrants are going to be undocumented here, creating another situation like we have on the southern border. Well, you know... There, in fact, there is a line of people who are legal here and are wanting to become citizens. And uh, I think, I don't think there's any problem with, I think, young people who were brought here by their parents. Uh, they're Even though they applied, once they turn 21, they have to go to the back of the line? Okay. 
No. As long as they're on the, as long as they get to be in the line. Denise Kraft? No. I, I, and, I, and I say that because bureaucracy in this country is so horrible that you're penalizing somebody who's been in line, but you made, you turned 18, and now you can't be part of this, you know, you have to go back again? That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. And it actually encourages the government to slow down even further, which penalizes the children even more. As though a bureaucracy needs any reason to slow down. Right, right. That's a good point. Carl Tuvin, some of the rulings, you know, looking forward, because they've got a huge docket still before them, one of the issues that's, uh, that's before the court that they have not ruled on is the issue of presidential powers, basically calling into question the ability of President Obama to nominate uh, uh, members of the National, National Labor Relations Board in a recess appointment. This has gone all the way to the Supreme Court. They have not voted on it. How important is this for the president? Well, I think it's pretty important for the president. <clears throat> and other presidents have used the, uh, the powers uh, the same as President Obama has used. And I hope that the, the president is upheld in this one, <clears throat> that they don't take that away from the president, that he does have this right to do what he has done. Dan Lipner? Well, this really goes more into where the court also has a job of normalizing politics. And unfortunately, we've seen... Uh, the confirmation process in the Senate break down horrifically. It's the worst it's ever been in this country. Um, so the court stepping in and at least providing some sort of guidelines for what is by definition a political question, but saying that the president does have some authority as the chief executive, that even the Senate has to be able to move this forward. You cannot, you cannot obstruct to, for the only interest of creating a dysfunctional government. So I, I agree with Carl. Denise Kraft. I'm betting the Supreme Court goes against what the Obama administration wants and also what the Republicans want, which is to continue the status quo. And I, and I think they're going to vote against it because they're pissed off at both of them. I mean, it, it, for a long time, on Democrats and Republicans, um, when they've given the presidential speech, you know, and when you go before Congress and, and you talk in, in January, you have cri they've criticized the Supreme Court. Both parties have, and I think the Supreme Court justices are tired of it, and I think that they need to use this as an opportunity to look at both people, at both entities, both the legislative and executive branch, and go, no, we're going to start listening but, to us now. But, it, but it's, it, it seems to me, though, that, you know, again, presidents from both parties have used recess appointments. This case was brought up on a technicality. Yep. The Senate basically saying, oh, no, we were in de facto session, we basically opened and closed, but we were in session. We could have taken this up at will, and it's now a Supreme Court case. Bob Hines, is, is, are we getting into an issue of semantics as far as recess appointments, and are recess appointments in danger? I think some of our semantics are, has to do with whether the Senate is in session or not. <laughs> but, uh, Dan Lipner? No, no, we have to know the history on this, because as, as far as the supermajorities that were, that were required to get any kind of appointment, the, the nuclear option that Harry Reid actually executed. Uh, so the court, can, holding on to this case, even absent the rule change in the Senate, suggests that Denise is right, that, that the Supreme Court wants to speak on this issue. The question is just how. Yeah. Carl Tuvin. Yeah. The other the counterpoint there is that the Supreme Court knows that, that the public is getting a little tired of some of the things that they're doing and that they're not favored in the public eye, and that might hold them back. Well, but, but, but the reality is the Supreme Court, 
nobody wants to like them. They just have to do their job, which is to be the chief law enforcement and the voice of law in the tricameral system. Congressman Al is wincing. Well, to say anything in a democratic government doesn't have to care what the public's reaction is, is I think an overstatement. Supreme Courts have been effective. They have not, so far as I can recall, they've never been driven to pull 180 degrees or anything like that. But they'll, they'll calm down a little bit after a while. I think you saw the Warren Court do that when... Uh, when conservatives are becoming terribly, terribly concerned about it. And I think uh, you're, you're beginning to see a little bit of that up with this court. Another big issue in front of the, the court right now is the issue on Obamacare, and that's what everybody is commonly referring to inside the Beltway as the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, Dan Lipner, the Hobby Lobby case is, is, a, is a big test for the legality of many of the aspects of Obamacare. Uh, it, it, will the Affordable Care Act be upheld, and, and does Hobby Lobby have a and its co-plaintiffs? Do they have do they have a, uh, a right here? We need, we need to do a little more background on the Hobby Lobby case. Yeah. The Hobby Lobby, a corporation incorporated that has suggested that it has its own religious beliefs under the First Amendment, that therefore it does not need to violate the corporation's religious beliefs in order to provide, um, uh, to, to provide contraceptive. contraceptive care uh, under its insurance policy, I will be shocked, absolutely shocked, if this court strikes this down and upheld Hobby Lobby's argument. It is, it is... But they've done that, but Dan, they, they've done that in other instances. I mean, basically they've said that corporations... Our people, they can have political action, they can speak, they can donate to political activities. This would almost countermeasure that. No, not, not in this case. I, Why not? I, I agree with Dan. Why not? Based off their, their past history and the way in which they've decided the law and religion um, cases, it gives me the, I'm going to agree with Dan and say that they're going to say that you cannot decide this as an organization. That if you are an organization and you have employees, that you cannot tell them what to do based off of the organization's religious. Well, they're not saying. Well, now, now, wait a minute. The Hobby Lobby case. They're not saying what they can do. What they're saying is, it's just it's, it goes against our core religious belief to supply contraceptive care to our employees. It's not something we believe in. Let Dan me Littner? know if Hobby Lobby decides to convert to Judaism or Islam, and then we'll we'll take that. <laughs> I'm not even willing to make a prediction here. This will be an 8-1 or 7-2 decision. Clarence Thomas is always an outlier, and Alito's done some weird things. So I, I am fairly confident this is going to be – Hobby Lobby is going to go down on this argument. What, uh, one of the ones also in front of it, Bob and Al, this is deep to your heart, is the TV broadcast rights, the, the, uh, the uh, Arrow question where a, a Internet startup company called Arrow started streaming live – broadcast feeds over the internet free of charge, and that's got the cable community up at arms. Does, does the Supreme Court look at this case as being a, 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 a right of the people to have broadcast TV if they can get it over the internet for free or whether they get it through the air for free? Or is this a economic issue with the cable companies going against somebody that might be trampling in their turf? 
I hate to, to defend <clears throat> some of these uh, cable systems, for heaven's sake, but the fact is that it costs money to produce programs. And the reason you do it is that you hope to make some money by producing these programs and selling them to viewers. And to say that somebody can come and, and take that programming material and, uh, and, and charge people for, for, for getting it free, uh, free to, the, to the, the, this, this antenna system kind of thing. It just seems uh, contrary but, to common sense. But Bob Hines, being the former vice president of NBC, obviously NBC's got concerns about this and has, and has expressed those concerns publicly. But it also comes down to a situation where the FCC issues these you know, prior to the outset of cable in the early 80s, uh, many homes in America got their TV for free, which is not the market case today. So if they've got an FCC license, doesn't Arrow have the capability to say, you know what, we're going to stream it. And you know what, it's free. It's according to an FCC license. Tell me no. Well, I think the court might tell them that. Really? Yeah. On, on what basis, though? Doesn't that contradict? What Al said is reasonable. It makes sense from an economic standpoint. Keeping this, if you're going but to talk to me about the FCC license issue, though, which is the basis of the arrow of the arrow argument. I cannot, you know, I cannot argue with you with, with that point, but I still say that I suspect that there'll be some structure there because if not, there'll be there'll be a bunch of arrows jumping up. It'll be a dump of things. Like well, that. I'm not quite sure how. The FCC licensing of television and radio stations is the same as the, these little antenna things yeah. because uh, the antenna thing is providing no programming of its own, as I understand it. It is simply taking other people's programming and providing it yeah. at a different cost. But one would, but one would argue, Congressman Al, one would argue that Hey, they get that through advertising. They generate revenue through advertising. They've been paying for advertising for years, which allowed them to broadcast free to the community under their FCC license. But, but, but radio and television stations do not get to have the, their programming free. They either have to produce it or they have to pay somebody yeah. to provide yeah. it. Right. Dan Lipner. Well, it's worth noting that so the FCC has two different realms of regulation here. One is which is over the airwaves, regulating the spectrum. The other is the regulating the pipe. And this is both telephone and cable. And this is where the weird world of the Wild West that we're dealing with of the Internet, which the FCC has done it both a hands-on, hands-off, back and forth with. So the rebroadcasting, essentially what it is, rebroadcasting a over-the-air television on the Internet, which the FCC has deliberately gone hands-off for what has been our policy for as long as the Internet has been available for 20 years now, that saying that the government is not going to regulate Internet content. This is the first time we really are dealing with that kind of crossover. So it's really a regulatory issue that could end up creating more of a federal bureaucracy as far as internet content, which is kind of scary. So it, it, it is a back and forth and a, and, a, and a balancing act beyond what the FCC was initially created for. And, and, by, and by the way, every other court 
has upheld Arrow's argument saying that, hey, they're providing a service licensed under the FCC. It's, it's the cable companies that brought this up and the networks that brought it up to the Supreme Court. Uh, Denise Krepp? I, I'm, I'm thinking about the ramifications for Skype. I mean, we all have used Skype before, and it is coming through the Internet. You're having a conversation, and, but you're not paying for it in most cases. I don't so, pay for Google Voice either. Well, exactly, but here's the, the issue. When we start thinking about companies that are using somebody else's infrastructure, how will this case impact them? And will they also take an interest in this and what the ramifications for all of us, and us you know, to our bottom line and to our, you know, stuff? Congressman now. That is a very good point, and, and it's even broader than that. As technology develops, it creates whole new problems that don't get easily answered by how we've always handled these before. I, I, I take copyright as an example. I do not believe that we would write the copyright laws today the way we wrote them and are currently enforcing them before because it, it wasn't a problem about... Uh, be, before the Xerox machine, there was no way anybody could copy a book. And so they, they'd given the copyright owners a lot of control over that, and the copyright owners a lot of control over other things, which I think probably they should not have. For example, I buy a CD, I make a tape of it, uh, and that's a no-no under copyright law. Well. I, I can't believe that a Congress today would say that the average citizen cannot make a copy of his own CD. Well, Dan Lipner? No, I mean, I'm, I'm far from an expert on this, this area of law, but the fair use that it, you have bought the right to that. You cannot make a copy of that CD and then give it to a friend, your niece, your nephew. That's where the, the breakdown occurs. You, you do own the usage of that song, but, yes. th but this is where that larger issue is. Sharing it on the internet is now, you're now creating a, you're basically sharing somebody else's intellectual property with the universe. And going that additional step, and this is now a real issue for, the, per the reason for copyright is, and this goes to the founding of the country, people are, do have a right to ownership for their intellectual property. There is value in that. Carl Tuvin. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Congressman Al. Sorry, Carl, but I, I am a home recordist. I make tapes. And you're not going to sell them. And I, I, I have made as many as 65 for, as Christmas presents. Uh, I have some. They, they, you have, and and <laughs> these are not where I take a CD and record the whole CD and give it away. I've got about 3,000 CDs. But, and I but, make, several courts, I make, but to that point, though, Congressman Allen, several courts have said you had the original Napster case that said that those individual songs that you're recording and giving to Bob, which, by the way, you and Bob just submitted on open airwaves that you guys are pirating, that's not a problem. We'll deal with that another problem. But the reality is the, the Napster case brought that to light, and they shut it down. And it, listen, it's a, listen, we're talking about two different things. Napster was a, was a, was a, a company. It was making money on it. But it also what I'm goes saying is if I take my property, I bought the CD, and I make a copy of it, and I give it, give it to somebody free, 
I'm making no money off of it at all, and it beggars the imagination that it would ever be done on a scale large enough to hurt the profits of the copyright owner. Carl Tuvin. Fortunately or unfortunately, when I came into the lobbying business, I represented 20th Century Fox, as Justin has said, and we at that time had the Betamax case, and we also had the blank tape case. This sounds a lot like going back to that in a different area. Interesting and hopefully, point. Hopefully, what the courts will say, hopefully, is that this should go back to Congress. It's copyright, and Congress should handle this situation. As a copyright, not as an FCC licensor issue. This is that, that's. I, I got to tell you something. I got to tell you something. I got a. I got a real. I got a real problem with the idea of. Not to pick on your former employer, Bob, NBC, but it seems relevant since you're sitting across the table. NBC makes a ton of money off of advertising, and that pays for that pays for their ability to broadcast free over the open airwaves. All right, Dan. I will go to Denise Crap. Denise Crap. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I have news that you're going to like, Justin. What's that? Thank you. Our friends at Roll Call, and I will read this verbatim, Boehner planning House lawsuit against Obama executive actions. Speaker John Boehner told Republicans Tuesday he could have an announcement within days on whether the House will follow a lawsuit against President Barack Obama, challenging the executive actions that have become the keystone of the administration. Oh, oh, wait a minute. There's a new, there's a new twist. You know what? We may talk about that in the next segment. That's breaking news. We'll take that up in the next segment. That's a big deal. Good good, good job, Denise. I'm proud of you. Thank you to our friends at Roll Call for that breaking news. Dan Lipner. But going back to the copyright, and it's 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 really easy to pick on the big players, the NBCs, the NBCs, CBS, ABC, as well as let's let's not mind you. We we we're all sports fans around this table. And you cannot watch a baseball, football, or basketball game without seeing the any rebroadcast of this will be prosecuted to the to the advanced degree. So that said, those are not. It's not just the big players. These are also the the basement artists who's producing music. The the small, small bands, small small writers as well. So let's be clear. There there are a lot of people who produce content that actually deserve to be rewarded for that content. And the Internet is the great, the, the great equalizer on distribution. And so allowing that distribution to occur, but also being able to get some reward for that, which is I what we're based on. Quite frankly, I didn't think this was going to be this big of a topic, but okay. <laughs> you got me around the table. You're going to have a discussion on this because the question is, are they making money on it? Are they using somebody else's intellectual property for commercial for, gain? For commercial gain, and they're and, not. And and if they, if you they, can't say that though. Even even your description. I just said it. Even, <laughs> even, even and I heard it. <laughs> even, even your distributing of, I'm presuming it's music that you're distributing to folks mostly. That music, 
conceivably would have been bought by those parties no longer needs to be purchased because you've now offered it to them for free. Well, on one of my tapes, you probably would have had to buy 60 different albums in order to be able to get the... And each, each and song each has value. And, and if I'm not mistaken, and this is a price I, I believe that's built into every CD you buy, that is partially to, to yeah. account for that that piracy it is because that's the way the copyright laws are written it was okay. rewritten in response you could not tell me that congress would today if we were starting fresh would deny the individual american citizen the ability to at no financial gain make a copy of 60 different tracks from 60 different LPs and put it or CDs and put it together in a unique way and give it to friends. I promise you Sony will, will, would have something to chime in on that. Well, I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. Sony would. Yeah. And all of those guys that are making money off of that will. Uh, I remember sitting down with a CBS executive once, and, and uh, the guy was in, in, almost had apoplexy okay. over high school students being able to use that machine. Okay. Well, with that, do we want to talk about do police have the right to search your cell phone or do you need a search warrant? No, I don't want to go into that. We'll wait till that ruling comes down. And then we'll get into it. This is to be continued. This is, oh, this is, oh, I can see it's going to be a big continuance once that ruling comes down this week. Uh, but anyways, we'll keep an eye on the rulings coming out of the Supreme Court. Big, big things on the, still on the plate for the Supremes. When we come back, we're going to talk about Denise's breaking news coming out of roll call. That is a huge, huge news, whereas, uh, Speaker of the House John Boehner, through our friends at Roll Call, has stated he may sue the Obama administration for executive action privileges. This is Backroom Politics Live from almost 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, Go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties.
previous discussion. We're, yeah. we're still talking about it. We got breaking news we're about to talk about, and you guys are still talking over oh, private. Oh, oh, Good Lord. All right, all right. Uh, we're going we're gonna to change gears. Uh, Denise just uh, announced earlier, and we've got it confirmed. Daniel Newhouser, uh, reporter for our friends at Roll Call, has just posted on their 218 blog that uh, Speaker Boehner earlier today told uh, Republicans in the House that he is going to file a lawsuit, quote-unquote, against President Obama challenging the executive actions that have become the keystone of the administration, unquote. Uh, basically, the Speaker told the House Republican Conference, according to Roll Call again, during a closed-door meeting Tuesday, that he had been consulting with several legal scholars and several law firms about taking this issue up. So this is something that has been premeditated for a while in Republican leadership. Uh, let me go with you, Bob Hines. Uh, you know, as an attorney and, and somebody who served as counsel, this is a huge, huge maneuver by House Republicans against the Obama administration, basically calling into question the, you know, a privilege given the president under the Constitution. This is a very, very divisive situation we've got here. It is, and let, let me say this. Uh, the Speaker of the House is a, is a pretty cautious gentleman. He is not given to flights of fancy. He is a pretty cautious fellow. Uh, I would be surprised if he has not talked to some very uh, high level. I've, I've been aware of this thing going on, and I know he's been talking to some pretty qualified lawyers who say there's a legitimate question here. Now, whether the, I'm not sure where the courts are going to go. Obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a relatively unique situation where we have a president who is, in effect, making, doing an awful lot of things with respect to executive orders that uh, change laws, do anything he wants to do. Now, I don't know if it's legal or not. And I'm not in a position to, you know, say I know exactly what the right what the right answer is. But I do know this: this is this is not a frivolous thing. Mr. Boehner does not do things that are frivolous. Well, according according to the article posted by David Newhouser in Roll Call, um, Michael Steele, the speaker's chief spokesperson, said, "quote The president has a clear record of ignoring the American people's elected representatives and exceeding his constitutional authority." which has dangerous implications for both our systems of government and our economy, unquote. He continued, quote, the House has passed legislation to address this, but it has gone nowhere in the Democratic-controlled Senate, so we are examining other options. Dan Lipner and then Carl Tubin. Well, first we need to, it, this is not a new thing. This is the history of the presidency. Um, the most noteworthy words actually given a, a phrase to that predates me, maybe not everyone around the table, definitely predates me. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt came up with the prerogative theory of the presidency. Um, that basically, unless, uh, unless Congress says you can't do it, yeah, it is the president's authority to do it. Um, I'm not saying it's necessarily right. It is absolutely an important issue in determining where it plays in. But this is nothing new. Every president from the inception of the republic has has used their own prerogatives as far as they could to try and get things accomplished. I just want to, I just want to say that it predates Bob and me, too. <laughs> <laughs> Which not much in this town does. <laughs> Carl Tubin. 
Hey, Al, you and I should take offense at that. You should. (laughs) Carl Tubin. You know, first the Tea Party comes in, bottles up the Congress so that nothing happens in the House. This has been the worst record of any Congress ever, as far as legislation is concerned. Uh, Then Boehner comes in with the establishment and is going to mess it up more. Nothing will ever get done in this administration in this in the next uh, year or two, <clears throat> unless there's some changes made in the election, because of all this. And, and let them do it. Let them do it. Denise Crap. Okay, from the legal side, I, I think they have they, they have a case. I mean, there have been executive orders that go back you know hundreds of years, but there have been executive orders issued in the past six that really should have been rulemaking. They should have been rulemaking. Now, that being said, the statement that, you know, Boehner's press person is saying that, you know, we've tried to address this, but the Democratic Senate is not letting us do it, that's bogus. I, I mean, you know, it goes back to what Carl said. You've actually got to do something. So don't blame the president for doing executive orders. You've got a case. But look to your own house first to clean it up before toss the dirt at somebody else. Congressman Al? That makes sense. The, the thing that I think might get overlooked here, because this is already turning partisan, uh, and the Republicans are saying we're doing this because they were mean to us, and uh, the president's going to come back and say, talk about mean, look what you've done, and da-da-da-da-da-da. But I, underlying this is an important, an important decision with regard to the the separation of powers and the Constitution and somebody, I hope, in a nonpartisan way is going to take a look at it. I don't know whether this is a good idea or not. I do know that President Bush uh, would change laws by just simply striking them out, and it seemed to me that that was... Are you suggesting signing statements aren't legal either? I, I, think, I think signing statements... On, on their face, it seems but to me, are in a let, Let's be clear about this. I, I, I want to make you, you made a comment that this is partisan. To me, as a Republican, I don't think it's a good move. This, to me, I mean, it's a privilege that Republican presidents have taken, as have Democratic presidents. To me, it's cutting our nose off to spite our face. Bob Hines, am I wrong in this? Let's put it this way. This is an area that is somewhat... Um, um, Loose. Put in the constitutional structure. Loose how? How far can the president go to strike out language in a law he doesn't like or, or decide not to enforce laws that are written down, that are part of the law he wrote, he doesn't like it? So what my, my view is, it's nice from the standpoint, as, a, as you think about it as, as a constitutional lawyer, it would be nice to clarify what are the extremes, where are the limits, what the president can do, what he cannot do. I think whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, House and Senate, President, whatever it is, it's nice to have a clear statement. And I think it would be useful for the country and for the Congress and for the presidency and for the executive to know what, in fact, is permissible and what is not. And I would agree with I would agree with that provided it was done on a nonpartisan basis. I couldn't agree with you more. Let's get the court to it. Denise Crap. Right, but let's see what the court comes out with in the NLRB case. 
because that'll get some very clear guidelines. That's another, that's another little I mean, bit. Yeah. So I exactly. would say I, I would not drop this lawsuit into that NLRB case comes out because then you'll get a better idea of how that second suit is fair. Well, Dan Lipner, well, let's also be clear. This is, by, by most metrics, this is the not just the least effective, but the least working Congress in the history of the country. Absolutely. Pro- produced less legislation, produced less time actually here doing the job of Congress than the history of the country. So the chief executive who doesn't, at no point ceases to be the chief executive when Congress is out of session, still has a job to do. So, I mean, this is a legitimate question to pose. And I, I'm not even, I don't even think the court is the right place for this. Unless you have serious people engaging in the conversation in a serious well, way, wait, wait, you wait. can't actually do it. Let me jump on this, though. You say that the court is not the right place for this, when in fact it calls into question the presidential authority under the Constitution. One would argue it is exactly the place and, for this. And, and the issues that you're, you're right, but the issues at play are the interplay between Congress and the chief executive. And if Congress is not acting and cannot find a way of doing something, we, we, the chambers are split. We have Democrats. Wait a minute, wait a yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just, Bob just because Congress and the executive are at odds is not enough to say, well, we shouldn't do this. It maybe shows you we need to clarify this problem so we know what the situation is. I agree. And I, and I, am, I am not arguing either way, one way or another, what's good, bad, or indifferent. I'm Neither saying we need to get an answer, a clear-cut answer. And the constitutional way to do that is to go to the Supreme Court and have them make no, a decision. Dan Lipner? But, but the Supreme Court cannot dictate congressional action. They're not and so this, is, so this is the real question. If, if the executive chooses to act and and Congress does not act because of an inability, and I'm talking the chambers being split here, of finding some way of communicating between the two, then in in absence, the world doesn't stop spinning because a political action has not been made. Things still happen, and it is still the onus of the executive to respond to what is happening in the world. Hold hold on, hold on, hold on. Congressman Al first, then Denise. your, Your point is well made. But I don't think it contradicts Bob's. That's right. Bob is asking for clarification. Yeah. You're you're arguing that there is a need for some flexibility, and the two are not inconsistent. No, and we need to get clarity. Denise Crap. Yeah, I'm just going to second what Congressman just said. It. I mean, you need clarity, but this is also why the, our forefathers put in a tripartite system of government, so that if you have if two aren't functioning, which one could argue happening right now, then a third one comes in and, and, and weighs in. I mean, this, this could be very interesting over the next couple of years because if the executive and legislative branch aren't working, we could see a resurgence of the judicial system, which we haven't seen in a long time. Are, are, we, wait, are, you, are you saying that this could, this case in particular, could allow the judicial system to quote-unquote flex its arms a little bit, Absolutely. flex its muscle in a way we haven't seen in decades? Yes. Yes. Interesting and thought. It would be a good idea for a clarity. We would like to know right now. But, I think, but Bob, I, I think part of the problem and part of the advantage to the White House and to the president himself has been the fact that it is, for lack of a better term, ambiguous. 
and therefore allows each president to make the determination on how he uses that right and privilege given to him under the Constitution to, to utilize that. I think, I think it, it creates more of a political crisis than really needs to be. I go back to Dan's point of saying that unless the two houses of Congress learn how to operate together as a congressional unit, that this is going to, that all we're doing is taking away the privilege of the president and giving more, and giving more of, a, and I'm trying to think of the right word, giving more substance to the houses of Congress to be able to call the shots when, they, no, when they're incapable no, of calling but, it. But, but, but let's clarify that. In actuality, it's the president acting through congressional inaction. Now, the president act, acting contrary to Congress's authority, that's a different question. But this is the president acting in response to inaction, in which case you have a vacuum. And under our system, that vacuum is filled by the chief executive. No, not necessarily. The vacuum, no. I don't think Who fills the vacuum instead? Boehner has no authority on his own. No. Nor, nor does Harry Reid. Nor does Harry Reid, nor is the president. But it's the, it's the institutional structure that we have to clarify. And we need to have a clarification. And that but clarification don't exist. Congress has the ability to speak. If in absence of speech, there is one more. No, that is not true. You see, here, here I'm agreeing with you both. Yeah. I tend to come down on your side of, of, of how it should be, but I completely agree with Bob that it needs to be clarified. Wow, this has never happened. Uh, yes, it has. This is the kind of a conversation that needs to be had at the highest levels, and it's the Supreme Court has to do it. But why should, the, why, should we, why should we have to rely on the Supreme Court after literally going back to Teddy Roosevelt's days? Teddy Roosevelt made an art form of presidential directives, and nobody's complained about it until now when we have a Congress that has an absolute logjam they can't clear. They don't. They can't clear it. Listen, Harry they do have a logjam, though, Bob. They have a disaster up there. Harry Reid won't do anything. You, a Republican in the Senate might as and well... And Harry Reid says that, that Boehner is, is, an, is an oppositionist regardless. But the, point, the fact of the matter is, the Congress right now, and probably, uh, I'm, you know, basically, the way the election's going, I expect the Republicans would do better in this election... Than, than I've seen one in recent. So then, why would the speaker? So then, why would the speaker, if in fact that is true, if in fact that we do have the opportunity as Republicans, and you and I are clearly Republicans, yeah. although I've been called other names. So have I. Uh, trust me, I know. <laughs> why, if we're going to make gains in the Senate, and we're going to obviously make possible gains in the House, possibly in a in a starlight's chance get custody of both houses of Congress. Why would we go to the Supreme Court and take away an action that, if we win the White House in 2016, could give us a lot more flexibility in promoting the party policy? Let me make a suggestion to you. Whether we should not try to figure out which partisan position is going to get in charge. But the presidential, oh, the, the presidential, the presidential authority is. Partisan, just by nature of him being a of partisanly course, elected official. Is, we need clarity here. We are now arguing three different things. Dan's, Bob's, and you bring up a new one, which is a, clearly a 
Well, let it go. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let Congressman Al let, let, let out finish. I have merit, but I think it's back to getting some clarity might help resolve the other problem. But do you risk, Congressman Al, do you risk clarity? Oh, <laughs> do you risk clarity at the, do you risk clarity for political gain? Or do you risk political gain in the in the interest of clarity? In, but I, okay, let me answer that question. Go ahead, you know, Denise. You know why I think you did it? The only way Republicans take both the House and the Senate is if you get the Tea Party on board, and this appeals to the Tea Party. You almost made Bob choke on his wine. Why do you, why 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 do you choke on your wine when Denise says that, Bob? I don't think he's old. I don't. Think, <laughs> most important thing here. We have to have constitutional clarity, period. Okay. To me, to me, to me, Bob, I think, Carl, you, you, what's the problem? No. Hold on, Carl, Carl. Wait a minute. You know what? We're talking about breaking news here, Carl. You know what? We may not get to some of you, so you might have to wait next week. We've talked to death. No. I, oh, I don't think we have. I honestly don't think we have. I, I think that this is, this is a true very direct positioning that the Republicans with Speaker Boehner, they've taken to literally bring into question the fact, and, and, and I've got a lot of respect for Speaker Boehner, but he is now calling into question the fact that the logjam can't be fixed, the President's taken his privilege to try and move things forward under his agenda, and all we're doing is taking away that that privilege. To me, that's, that doesn't seem logical. Well, let's, Dan go, let's go back to the Constitution here for a moment, and something that has, as far as I know, has never been exercised, at least not in my memory. I'm sure it has been. The President does have the exclusive authority to call Congress back into session. I think Obama should respond for the August recess, call Congress into session for literally every issue that is pending and insist Congress remain in session until those issues are resolved. You know what, that would take leadership on President Obama's part. Bottom line. Well, that kills it. That kills it. Let me, anyway. Let me tell you, I think, if they do this, if they fall suit, you know, they've, they've, they've accused him of everything. And now if they, if they do this, they might be going over the edge. Why? And the people might start to say... What's going on here? Why are they doing all this? When you, but when you say that people over the edge, what does it, what does it drive the people to do? Let the people to already? say, why are they doing this to this president? And it, it's going to open all kinds of other things. Throw all the rascals out. Right, right. And, and they're liable to throw all the Tea Party out and others out. And, and we elect might, new and Tea Party might, people. And we might prevail. We, you might prevail, meaning Democrats? That's right. So then why are you complaining that we're having this discussion? I thought you'd enjoy this discussion, no, Carl. I'm enjoying it. Good grief. Well, in the, inter in the interest for Carl, because Carl was writing on his notepad, tell me a story, tell me a story. If, if this story you have, Carl, doesn't come out in this, like, past 12 months, so help me God, 
I'm going to come unglued. This is my favorite part of the story. This is my favorite part of the show, Tell Me a Story. We talk about the buzz innuendo. We got eight minutes left. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. This is the 24th of June, and, and I've got it on, uh, on my Blackberry and on TV. The the uh, Tea Party they're accusing Cochran of bringing blacks in to vote for him, pouring blacks. Not just blacks, Democrats. And and the Tea Party has has asked the police to come watch the polls. <laughs> and let me tell you, this could turn into a real mess. It could be in court for months. And guess what? The Democrats might even be able to pick up a seat in Mississippi where they can't at this point. No chance. Congressman Al, tell me a story. Well, I don't know. I. You like going back to the other subject. I... <laughs> All right. Well, think, I you think about copyright. No, no, no. no. <laughs> we've already kicked that one. But I, what is copyright I, I, on the program, by I the way? I kind of like his concern here. It's, it's good. Bob Hines, tell me a story. I'm going to pass for the moment. Wow. Denise, he's the one who's driving me to tell me a story, and you guys got nothing. Denise Kreb, tell me a story. My daughter's Girl Scout troop went to the Washington National Stand against the Braves. It is, by the way, this week. Thank you very much. And I saw the coolest thing. There were brownies acting as the color guard. Oh, neat. Oh, that is kind of cool. Yeah, so that is kind of cool. Very cool. So I wanted to say thank you, Washington Nationals, for supporting Girl Scouts. Also, for giving brownies, they must have been wow. six or seven, the opportunity to hold the flag in the national anthem. That, that's very cool, actually. And for having a name that isn't racist. That's yeah. true. <laughs> Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Uh, well, at, continuing with the sports theme, now that there are free agents out there, I'm predicting that both Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James are the newest Washington Wizards. What? <laughs> What are you smoking in that cigar? <laughs> what are you smoking in that cigar, dude? You're high. You're absolutely high. I'm coming back to you, Congressman Al. I'm low. Uh, <laughs> don't well, don't even try. I'm not even going to ask for it. Bob Hines, last shot. The hell with it. The hell with it. <laughs> Eric Thomas. Eric Thomas. Yarden Kakong. Come here. You guys had a story for me. What was the story? Oh, I know what the story was. It was today. Uh, Yarden Thomas. Uh, Yarden Thomas. Yarden Kakan and Eric Thomas. Come on over here. Lean in. Uh, Eric Thomas, tell me the story that we heard from uh, the congresswoman from Michigan. Explain who he is. Oh, Eric Thomas is our summer associate. He is our assistant producer here on Backroom Politics. Uh, Eric, what did we hear Candace Miller say after hearing today? in front of the Secretary of Homeland Security and the entire committee, what did she want to do with Mexico? Uh, she, wanted to, she wanted to cut all foreign funding to Mexico and, and like, uh, repeal NAFTA. Yeah. So Candace Miller today, in the full committee of Homeland Security, told the Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, uh, basically she wants to cut off all foreign aid to Mexico and cut off NAFTA as a result of the situation. You, you can't do that till I get back from my Mexico vacation. Jan <laughs> <laughs> Kakon, do you have a story to tell us? Tell me a story. Okay. Come, yeah. clo come close. So a man is suing British Airways for sending him to the Caribbean island of Granada instead of the Spanish city of Granada. Oh, that's right. That's On right. Accident. On accident. How do you screw up going to Grenada? the Caribbean island, 
and Granada, a resort city in Spain. At what point did this guy go, oh, wait a minute, this isn't my flight. Could it have been that he was over the Atlantic? He didn't look at his ticket. Apparently not. Apparently, this man does not know his ICAO codes. That's deep in the weeds for you guys out there in Radio Land. Hey, uh, on behalf of our two associate producers, Yarden Kakan, Eric Thomas, and the roundtable, Congressman Al Swift. Yo. And I, I forget your name, Carl. You got me so upset. Carl Tuvin, Bob Hines, Denise Kreff, Dan Lipner. I am your host, Radio's Justin Russell. We'll be back next week talking about all the insane stuff happening here in Washington as we do. You can follow us on the web at www.backroompolitics.org. You can also follow our tweets at Backroom Politics. We're on Instagram at Backroom Politics and our Facebook, uh, Facebook Backroom Politics. Uh, and uh, on behalf of myself, I'm Radio's Justin Russell, your moderator of Backroom Politics. We are live here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. Absolutely. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week live from Shelley's. Bye-bye.